0: You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast.
1: The Legal Talk, a show that is uh, much uh, liked by the listeners. And Alhamdulillah, uh, looking at all of you getting around your radio this evening or your receivers this evening. And Alhamdulillah, it's time for Legal Talk on uh, the platforms of Marcus Sahaba, the voice of the Ahl sunnah Jama'a. Let's welcome you with our attorney, is muhammad kubadia with a hearty assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh and tell me uh, uh muhammad how are you doing this fine beautiful evening wa, wa rahmatullahi
0: warahmatullahi wabarakatuh i'm doing well Shafat. and i hope you guys your listeners wherever you are in the world allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is blessing you this evening and you hope that everything is going well for you no matter where you are i'm doing well jazakallah khair for having me on your show inshallah we'll have an exciting show this
1: evening inshallah always with you uh, you know allah has blessed you and uh, i like the positivity that resonates from you and the high octane of spirituality besides your physiology and your physicality i know you are in ship shape you're looking forward to you know rajab shaban ramadan tell me what goes through your mind uh, muhammad because you know you that type of guy that uh, allah has blessed you for doing dawah and then you have become a hafiz al quran i mean uh, you know you you, you make the move and you, you have done the right things for your spirituality and when this you know beautiful months are rolling in what do you do muhammad
0: you know every hafiz by this time of the year needs to set out what he wants to do for the forthcoming ramadan and uh, this is now my month where we start now getting what we want to get ready for Tarawih, making sure that we revise it and get ready. Because the month of Ramadan is not the month of learning. That is the month of reciting. So, yes, when it comes into Rav Chub, there's an element of anxiety that comes into my my soul, my heart. And I feel that, I think that maybe every Hafeel that wants to read, Tarawih for the month of Ramadan Already sets out his goals Sets out where he wants to read Which masjid, which jamaat Ghana, Which house, which home uh, Yes, but no matter what The words of encouragement to every hafiz Don't lose the opportunity of Ramadan We're on the doorsteps of Ramadan 60 days, 59, 58 The days go so quickly Every day you wake up, you're one day closer to Ramadan And if you don't have That passion for Ramadan And you don't have that predetermination and that preparation for Ramadan, then you're unable to take the maximum benefit from this beautiful month. So whilst we are in Rajab, I think the thought is already, like you say, the thought is already into Ramadan and how we already as a Muslim, we have to prepare ourselves for this beautiful month. So yes, when you asked me and you mentioned that I'm Hafid, so Hafid is passionate about his Quran. He wants to make sure that he doesn't lose a single day whether it's in Ramadan or out of Ramadan, every day should be a desire and a yearning to read some portion of the Qur'an. And, and, and funny enough, you know, Shafat, I found when I speak to some of the senior Hafaz and I'm talking about Imams of Harams, when you speak to them and you sit down, their life revolves around the Qur'an. We the, the, who know less Qur'an and less tafsir and less, we don't even appreciate what they appreciate yet. You will find that they, the type of people, minimum three to five suparas a day. Minimum is a part of their life. So be, after vigil, they're going to read three, three suparas or three Jews or five Jews as a minimum every day. And yet we find those, you know, bordering on halfway and just qualify. We have like even if we read quarter, we feel that we've done something. But. We should we should have desire in the desire and the yearning to at least every day to read a couple of two three four five subaras every day and if you save that cycle in a week every week you'll we'll be able to finish the uh, one khatam of the quran inshallah yes so that's
1: my rajah for you beautiful indeed and i you know i knew uh, a gentleman this man was truly a gentleman a historian and his name was uh, Ismail Patel. You know what he used to do, uh, Muhammad? He used to fast from Rajab, Shaban, and then he went to do Ramadan. But he fasted this whole day, you know. And, and the, the, the other day, whilst I was reading the Noble Quran, and like I visualized him, and I said, you know what, for this man, I'm going to read a special Yasin. And I did that. Because you know, he's gone to the world of a reality and so forth, but uh, the addiction to the Quran is like you know, none other. Because it was Sheikh Ahmadi that, uh, Rahimullah, that infused that uh, you know, the, the, the uh, reading the Quran with understanding and meaning. And you know, what an impression it makes when you read the Quran uh, with the meaning uh, and you talk. And yeah, you know, you know, as a da'i, the indelible impression that it makes on a potential revert because you, when you talk. But the, when you read the Arabic first, that alone, you know, touches the uh, soul of the individual. But you know the equivalent meaning of what you are saying. That makes a very big difference. Even when you are reading a noble Quran and you get to, you know, like the kul say, how to bring purhan, proof, in kuntum, if you are Sadiqin, truthful. and truthful. You, you get to understand or you get to learn the uh, Quranic Arabic. Not that uh, Arabic or the kitchen Arabic uh, that, you know, the people speak in, in different parts of the Arab world, uh, Muhammad.
0: So, you know, just on the topic of Arabic, um, for me, a, a big eye opener was when I went to Jerusalem and Al-Aqsa Masjid. And I found that our enemies, the Jews, speak Arabic and they they they, they know and understand Arabic better than what we as Muslims know. So, if your enemy has taken it amongst from all the things that he wants to learn and a desire to learn, if he's taken it upon himself to want to learn Arabic in an effort to overcome or to defeat or to understand his enemy, how much more passionate should we become about our Quran? So, you know, the first time I went there to the border, uh, uh, he calls me into the room, and the guy says, You're Muslim? I said, Alhamdulillah, I'm Muslim. So he says, in arabic uh, he he didn't he didn 't think i'd understand Arabic, but he thought he 'd insult me you know i'd say, "Index sikina, do you have a knife with you?" So I naturally responded, mind ma, mafikina this is i don 't have a, a knife." So he got a bit shocked also because he knows that the average South African doesn't know Arabic. You know, then he asked me like uh, in Arabic again one two other questions, and I responded, Alhamdulillah, I was able to respond and to put him in his place to make him realize that you know what Arabic is my language and I want to have control over the discussion. If you want to talk to me in Arabic, uh, I, I I want to respond in Arabic, and it was an eye opener for me. and I came back and I told. I told my friends, I told my family, I said, we see how laxy-daisy we are about our Arabic and yet see how the kuffar are taking an interest. Not only that, when I was in America, my brother teaches Arabic he's in one of the universities. So I went to his class, you know, I sat in on one of his lessons and I saw that the vast majority of people that are sitting and learning Arabic are not, uh, are not Muslims. And I was shocked after, after he had his lesson. I, I asked him, and said, Why are there so many non-Muslims that want to learn Arabic? So he said they've got various reasons. Maybe they want to go work in the Arab world. Maybe they want to work for Arab, in Arab embassies or work in Arab airlines. There's good job opportunities, relocate to other parts of the world. I said for the dunya, people are willing to sacrifice so much. People are willing to put so much effort in the dunya. How much more effort should we put in order to benefit for the year uh, after? Their intention is, 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 is for the dunya. And, you know, that famous hadith that... Um, that your every action is judged by your intention and then from an Hajra illallahi wa the person who makes Hijra to Allah is Rasul Hajra illallahi he is the person who gets the reward of making Hijra for Allah and Rasul. and the person that travels and makes Hijra uh, takes and undertakes a journey for to get married he gets the the marriage in exchange because his intention was for dunya if he person goes for tijara or trade, his reward is exactly tijara or trade. So you could be sitting and learning Arabic, but you want to learn it because you understand the Quran so that you want to embed yourself as a Muslim. Your reward is for, the year, is for the year after, and Allah will reward you appropriately. But these people, they come and they go through the, the the routine and the steps and they learn Arabic. And how often we find that today that people want to attack us by knowing a bit of Arabic. So when you enter into a debate or discussion, you remember that Anish Sarosh, okay, he was maybe Palestinian, so he had a background of Arabic, but they used the Arabic opportunity to try to teach us about Islam. And if we don't know any better, we're not able to defend ourselves, we're easily influenced by these people. Anish Sarosh, when he, when he um, challenged Ahmadinejad about some of the verses of the Quran, the verses of the Quran are grammatically incorrect for the following reasons. And then he he quotes uh, a couple of the verses. Um, at least Ahmadidat knew and understood what he was trying to say, and he understood where the mistake and the error was, or whether how how surreptitious or nefarious his arguments were. And Shah responded appropriately, even though Shah didn't understand Arabic. But he understood basic Arabic to allow him to respond and understand the nature of the argument. So so we, we could very well be challenged as dais, as Muslims. Maybe even then we become uh, doubtful about what we believe in because somebody is able to misquote a couple of the verses of the Quran and because we don't have that understanding of the Quran, we're unable to respond appropriately. So shock or doubt then sets in on a person. And yet, we as Muslims, we're supposed to have embraced Islam. Islam is being taught in schools, but unfortunately, when they come out of school, the level of the Arabic that they've learned is minimal, very basic. So it's not as how well we speak a second language, we speak Afrikaans, we may even speak Zulu, better than what we speak Arabic. And that, that that is a major concern. I think, you know, when we look at North Africa and how they gave up all their previous religions, they gave up their previous languages, and they embraced Islam, and they embraced Arabic, and they took Arabic on as the first language. The whole of North Africa is Arabic speaking from Morocco to Egypt. Unfortunately, on the other side of the Saudi or the other side of the world, India and Malaysia and these countries in and around that area, the Arabic became just the religion, secular or the theological aspect. It was not associated with their daily um, tongue and maybe that was, that that should have been something that should have changed. If North Africa could change and turn to Arabic, then we should have had the Indian subcontinent uh, rely or embrace Arabic as their first language and maybe Automatically, our children who grow up in an uh, Islamic environment. So evening, I, I mentioned to my son, I said, we didn't learn Arabic by waking up one morning, swallowing a pearl and saying, I can speak Arabic. I said, it came with a lot of effort, sacrifice. We cried. You know, when you go into a Darul Ulum, then they teach you Arabic on the Mizan. So something that I did 30 and 35 years ago, you know it because it was the foundation of how you learned your Arabic. So just to give you an understanding, so you take the Arabic word where they have the past participles and the present participles. And by learning a foreign language, you actually find that your English becomes better because now you need to learn what's a noun, what's a pronoun, what's a subject, what's an object, what's an adverb, what's an adjective. So how they teach you Arabic is... Yeah, from the Indian subcontinent, they have a specialized way of teaching Arabic. It's a unique way and it helps, alhamdulillah. We learn Arabic through this. So you learn Arabic, for example, through a scale. Fa'ala, fa'ala, Fa'alu, Fa'alat, fa'alata, fa'alna. Fa'alta, Faaltum, Fa'altu fa'alna. So you will say, wow. But that's only one of the various, many scales that how we had to learn Arabic. But you think we can say it it spit it out like this because just, we just woke up one morning and said we're going to learn the scales. And by lunchtime we knew all the scales. No, it was effort. It was sacrifice. It was blood. It was tears. We get the verbs all mixed up. Instead of saying he went, we say he is going. Instead of saying she went, you we put it said. It's just just the nature of learning a foreign language. But Islam is a beautiful religion. It's rich. There is not a single translation on the face of this earth can then even begin to do justice to the meaning and the translation of the Arabic Quran. There is no way that a translator who doesn't apply his personal contribution to the translation, this is how translations work. So it depends on the era and the epoch and the understanding of the deen through the eyes of the translator that we are reading. So when you read um, Abdullah Yusuf Ali's translation, it comes with his baggage. It comes with his understanding. That's why you find variances, you read different translations, and you see, but look how different the translators, what different words that they choose. But as a person who has, who develops an understanding of Arabic, and the more you read the Quran, the more the words will become familiar to you, the more easier it is for you to read the Quran with understanding, Reading the Quran in Arabic is virtuous, it's meritorious, for every letter there is ten reward for Alif Lamim, there is thirty reward. Alhamdulillah, that has its place. But what about reading it with understand? The Quran says... <laughs> that the Quran brings forth the similitude of the people of the Torah. That they were like donkeys, that's asses, that's carrying books. And the value of the books had absolutely no effect on the asses because they had the books, they had the knowledge, but they were carrying it as if it was a burden. And this is an example in a similitude for us today. You have the Quran. The Quran is mubeen, The Quran is magnificent. The Quran is the words of Allah subhanahu wa taala. Yet unfortunately, we are Muslims that have very little or no knowledge about the Quran, and that is, I think, one of the our greatest weaknesses. For us that don't speak Arabic as a as a, as a, as a first language, that we don't take it upon ourselves to try to understand what the message of the Qur'an is.
1: Yes, sir, Muhammad. You're very eloquent in what you were saying. And I was, uh, uh, you know, I was uh, busy expounding on the ayat, you know, where, you know, it says, uh, which is that of the favors of your Lord do you deny? And in the Urdu equivalent, it says, kis, kis, anemeti, abki, rabki, jutlaoge. And I found that, you know, even listening to the Urdu translation, um, it's so like, you know, appealing to the soul, so close to the Arabic that uh, I get so much more joy listening to, 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 to that, that, that language. So I spoke to the local mufti about it. And he says uh, the one of the most powerful love languages on this earth is Urdu actually? For that, so uh, we do all that. But I, you know, both you and I, uh, Muhammad, I think we have this indelible uh, passion for this noble Quran. And may Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala keep it with us. And uh, maybe, you know, when we go to the next world, inshallah, we hope and pray it will be our constant companion there. And they say, in the, you know, when Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala in that realm, uh, when everything is done, we'll read Surah Al Rahman. To all his creation what a moment that will be muhammad and alhamdulillah for sharing uh, those moments we're going to get to our topic uh very shortly but let's talk about the dwellings of the prophet wasallam. Uh, let's look at the dwelling of nabi muhammad wasalaam, living in such confined spaces uh muhammad and uh, you know the fineness of creation living like that it goes through your thoughts and it goes through your mind and sometimes you think you know sometimes we uh, who claim to be the followers of Nabi Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam are building these palatial homes uh, getting into things you know and we claim to be lovers of Nabi Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and uh, you know one of the wise men said the worst of money spent is money that he spent on sand and stones how would you react to that uh, Muhammad
0: you know Aisha radiallahu muminin said that um, in the middle of the night our room was so small that when Nabi used to go into Sijda, he had to shift my feet, my legs out of the way, so he could make Sijda. And if a person reads the story, and a person ponders about how narrow and confined just the bedroom was, you actually begin to question, what are you doing with your own life, with your own sa- with your own dwellings? If we have to just consider how basic... The houses, what was considered to be a bathroom, imagine how difficult it was without water. Imagine how difficult it was if you needed to go to the toilet in the middle of the night. Imagine how how difficult it was just to change your clothes in a room that's basically exposed to the streets, that the walls are of mud and the roof is falling apart. Imagine how difficult it was for the Sahaba at that time, whilst knowing full well that in Rome and in Persia, the palaces... And the castles and the dominion and the people were living in absolute luxury in fact the quran says musa a.s. tells allah that you have given Firon and his people khazina and wealth and opportunity but they are the same people that turn away from you so the people love very opulent lives. The people loved the types of lifestyles we can only dream about even in today's day and age, even in in those years, even prior abysism, even prior the time of uh, some of the major prophets, how well of the beautiful gardens they talk of Babylon and how lush and green, and how Kam-Taraku Uh, The the Qur'an actually talks in one of the verses about how the gardens that the people left behind, how beautiful the structures and the buildings and everything was. Fee jannati in the gardens and wells and, and waterways, people lived in such opulence. But at the end of the day, when they passed on, the heavens and the angels did not even cry, did not even cry for them. So let us not be those types of people that make our abode, that make our destination the dunya. At all times we need to be we, we, we need to be living in this dunya but our hearts need to be in the year after. We need to be in this dunya, but we need to know that our final destination is in the Akhirah and that is Jannah. So with that, the simplicity of our lives needs to be reflective of us as Muslims. We need to say to ourselves, you know what, it's well and good and, and Shafat when I say this I'm guilty of of, of, of this Firstly, when I say this, I say it, and inshallah, I I want to have it as an impact on myself, and I want to say it with humility, that our lifestyle is not conducive to that of a believer. Today we live in double-story mansions, huge mansions, because we have, we can afford, and this is our lifestyle. But, but, you ask yourself the question, is this the condition we should be living in, even in an environment today, knowing that our workers, when they go back home, when they go back to the shelter in the evenings, or they go back to the, to the, uh, to the, to the homelands at the end of the year, what type of lifestyles are they having there? How they work for us and they sacrifice? Don't you think in their heart there's an element of jealousy or there's an element of disapproval of that the Indians have come, and the Indians have taken over the businesses and the wealth and these types of things. And the evil eye is such a simple thing. That today a person intentionally and unintentionally can cast an evil glance on you, and because of that, the barakah can be lost. And the and the fitness associated with your wealth and what Allah has given you comes into place. So, yes, we Latin sir, The Quran says, Do not forget altogether, do not love like a hermit, do not forget your value or your nasiba what Allah has granted you in this world. In Allah Jameel, Allah himself is beautiful and he loves beauty. But by that, there needs to be a balance because we are a balanced people. We are balanced in the dunya, how we live in this world, and inshallah we'll be a balanced person for the year after. So, in so many ways, we need to sit back and be reflective. Previous nations came and went, and Allah gave them. But what benefit was there? We look at the lifestyles of some of the prophets, Alhamdulillah, Allah gave them, but they were grateful. Look at the lifestyle of Dawood alayhi salam. Look at the lifestyle of Sulaiman, alayhi salam. Allah gave them wealth, but that wealth was never preceded by arrogance, by ghafla, by unheedlessness towards Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. It was always preceded by Allah's tawhid Allah's establishment of his rule, Allah's establishment of who Allah is and their lives were completely in accordance with sharia. So, yes, as Muslims sometimes we need to consider that we are people living in an environment and you know we Allah has given us an opportunity alhamdulillah to live decent lives. Allah has given us an opportunity to to enjoy from what he has given us. But at the same time, a Muslim needs to have find his place within society and say, as a Muslim, this is extravagance. Today, look at our weddings and we can see the level of extravagance that we, sp- we spend just in our weddings, for example. Look at the cars that we drive. Some of the cars we drive is three and four and five million rand, and the economy and the people are suffering, and you're driving it down the roads, and you're thinking people are not looking at these things. You think people evil evilize evil eyes the truth. If we don't even consider uh, uh, these things, then, you know, we're bound to have the barakah taken away from these things. So, yes, we can go. And on talking about just the dwellings that we live in, and 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 you know, but uh, for for this evening's program, here's just a few points for us to be reflective about, a few points for us to consider as Muslims living in this country, Shafat.
1: Beautiful, uh, you know, we brought in the spirituality and, you know, always uh, being on an Islamic platform, uh, we have to, you know, bring in uh, that. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala judges us, he said, I gave you an amana, I gave you a platform. Did you mention me? Did you talk about my deen? Yes, we did. And alhamdulillah. But uh, looking at our topic this evening, uh, Muhammad and alhamdulillah, I can tell you, uh, people, this uh, the topic this evening has been uh, uh, suggested by our uh, attorney, Hafiz Muhammad Kubadia. And it's uh, buying and selling a house, legal steps and a procedures. Important thing to know because, you know, you can get the charlatans and you can get those, uh, you know, the schemers and you get the pranksters and you get to uh, forget it. They get all these con artists and there's so many, you know, making it look like, hey, I'm the I'm the real deal. And when he's got his loot and he's moving away and you're left with nothing, uh, take us through this uh, fascinating topic of buying and selling a house, uh, how much?
0: Gee, so sometimes people feel that uh, I'm going to buy a house and Alhamdulillah, it's very exciting, especially if it's your first home, especially if the husband and wife are starting a small family. We're living in an environment today that we need shelter, we need good shelter, we need basic shelter, we need also creature comforts of this dunya and this is the nature of who we are as human beings. So yes. Buying a house is considered to be the biggest decision you'll ever make, biggest financial decision you'll ever make. If you buy a car, that may possibly be your second, most biggest financial decision. So, just to just to bring our listeners up to speed on that today, uh, this evening, we, if there's you know just some of the advices that over the years we can manage to share, um, yes. The first thing today when you go out and you hunt for a house and you seek for a house is that uh, when you're happy with a house, you normally complete what's called the offer to purchase or the agreement of sale. Uh, What I normally would recommend for potential buyers is to prepare, get a list, and estate agents normally have to now, estate agents now have to prepare a list of all the defects in the house. So you find that an estate agent now goes to a home when he takes a mandate, he speaks, sits down with the seller and he tells the seller to complete a disclosure form. And in the disclosure form, he's able to now identify and itemize in detail all the list of defects, all the list of improvements that is required on the house. And when a potential buyer seeks to purchase a house, He then gets the copy of this list. So now the seller has now itemized it, he's detailed it, he now signs it at the bottom and he dates it. The purchaser has got something to rely on and the purchaser has got something to claim against the seller. Now, why is this important? Because we are not builders, we are not contractors, we are not people who are by nature experts in building, constructions, and, and, and in this industry. So, as as a matter of course, we don't take professionals with us. When you go out to see a house, you normally take the wife and the children, and if they like the garden and the wife likes the kitchen and the bathroom, then the house is generally sold. But the problems start creeping in, when there's the first rains, when people just move in, suddenly the electrical box is not working, suddenly there's... there's uh, there's uh, entomologist reports that are incomplete or are not, 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 not supplied. Or suddenly, you know, you come things that are hidden, like they say, latent and patent things that uh, the defects that you are able to see and the defects that you're unable to see. But the seller who's lived there for many years, he obviously knows where the defects in the house are. And by law, when he sells the house through an estate agent, this is now what is something he's got to supply. But when there's a private sale, then the buyer should go out of his way to get one of these forms and get the seller to complete it so he knows and understands where the defects in the house are. That's from a legal perspective. That's from a secular law. From an Islamic perspective, it's very important that the seller shows the buyer the defects in the property irrespective of whether he asks for it or he doesn't ask for it. Same thing with any commodity that you sell. It's not only your house, even if it's your car, even if it's just a pair of scissors. The scissors is blunt, you should tell the purchaser, I'm selling you the scissors, but you haven't tried it yet. I just want you to know the scissors don't cut very sharp. That is what a Muslim businessman is supposed to do. So taking it back to the topic, this is what a Muslim seller is supposed to do. He is supposed to point out the defects to the purchaser so that the purchaser is fully aware what is it that he is buying and um that's that's now the first step towards buying a property shafat
1: absolutely and you know uh, when we look at the uh, uh buying and selling of properties in the south african context you know uh firstly you know in, uh, perhaps a person will go you think about yeah you know what what route will I be taking to buying or selling a property or you, you, you know you have to choose a maybe if you're selling a property you'll have to choose a, a a selling price for the property how do you evaluate your property do you get a real estate agent uh, to come and look at your property and say yeah this is the valuation or a man like yourself who does a lot of conveyancing uh, Mohammed can you come into a property and say yeah you know this this will be a fair value do you do things like that
0: Yes, so what happens is normally when we get into a transaction, the trans- the complete agreements have already been done. The agreements, the seller and the buyer have already agreed on to a purchase price, and normally the finances are also already in place by the time we get the deal. But the best advice, so 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 that like the advice I gave previously, is some of the pitfalls that I see in doing these transactions over the years that when the buyer finally gets into the property and then these issues, now the seller has already been paid and he's moved on. You need to track him down, find him. The seller strikes his shoulders and says, you know what, it's a 2,000 rand stove. If it's not working, sort it out yourself. You know, it's these types of issues that tend to unfortunately creep in uh, on occupation and pitfalls that I would warn against. More, More particularly, what would be considered to be a fair price? Unfortunately, or in this industry, there is no guideline or handbook, rather, let's say there is no handbook where you could just open up and see. Okay, a property in Sydenham. Uh, this, this, uh, these are the. Uh, this, this, this would be the value, because. It's not like a motor vehicle. A motor vehicle is by and large standard. So you know you're buying. If you see a nineteen, a nineteen ninety nine Toyota Corolla sixteen hundred, you have you just open up the book and you would get all the figures, and you're able to work out maybe five percent here, five percent there. You're able to work out some rough estimate. So with houses, it's you know materially different. It's based on a lot of factors. At the end of the day, the seller always wants to get the best possible price. And the purchaser wants to pay the least possible price. So that is always something you need to consider. There is today, there is software programs that we have access to, estate agents and attorneys, to have access to. But what they do is they actually give you a general idea of what properties in the area have sold at. So you would say, my neighbor's house sold two years ago, he received one million Rand for it. But then you're not comparing apples with apples because he may have had six bedrooms and you only have three bedrooms. He may have two bathrooms and you have six bathrooms. So, so, so that also is just some indication of what property prices are in the area. Then of course, you know, is it sea facing? Is it bush facing? Is it next to a school where the children stand outside the whole day, smoke and make a noise and, you know, start Vandalizing neighbors' properties, start stealing things from the yards, or is it close to a masjid and that would have some benefit, or is it close to shops so you don't need to take out your car to go buy um, a loaf of bread? These are other factors that 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 allow um, for values to fluctuate. You know, sometimes you find that you're living in an area that's predominant, all this life. The prices have been just been. S- uh, around the same values and nothing superb about the area and suddenly you know uh, a beautiful masjid comes up in the area and because now the masjid is there uh the value of the properties around the masjid automatically increase i mean we've seen it happen you know in some of the white areas when the, the indians or the muslims then moved north north of Joburg, north northern I suppose like we say here and because then masjids were established the houses around the masjids Automatically, the prices increased accordingly, so yes, these factors are very personal they're very um, localized I c- you can't generally say you know what values in one area would fetch in other areas um, and, and and I would say that an estate agent generally also is supposed to provide advice to potential purchasers and sellers because this is the nature of their business. So sometimes we're paying them a fee, but the fee that we pay them is worth every penny because they're providing information, information that is useful, information is valuable. If you phone an estate agent and you say, listen, can you show me a few houses? You could very well see five or ten houses with an estate agent, and you're able to then compare pricing. Based on that, you are able to understand the nature of the market and what prices should be offered in terms of now moving, you know, something that, that you're attracted to and what price you must consider for that?
1: Yeah, Mohammed, you know, you also find, uh, you know, many people, especially, you know, they had this bank and uh, or maybe the African bank and so forth, uh, giving people loans or willy-nilly without checking out the background or whether they have uh, the capacity to, you know, service a bond and so forth. But the banks have been giving uh, all these individuals, uh, you know, loans and then they can't pay uh for the property and then the property repossessed and uh, uh, re-auctioned and so forth uh you know it it it, it 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 begs the question what must a person do before buying a property to call it a home what must they do you know a buyer maybe you know contact they go and contact the bank and you know the bank uh, hopefully now they are more stringent you know you qualify for this and that but uh generally to make sure that it's you know watershed on, on on or watertight on either side, what must you really do from the outset? Should you be in the hands of a uh, of of a legal person, uh, Mohammed?
0: Yeah. You know, like I said initially, this is one of the biggest decisions that you should make. A person should not sign an offer to purchase unless the person is fully understanding of what the offer is about. And sometimes you find that a person is presented with an offer to purchase, albeit maybe from an estate agent. That person should seek the services of an attorney, somebody that has knowledge about offer to purchases, and say, listen, please explain to me what does footstoots mean. Now you find also where we stay, for example, a lot of the, our... Indian brothers from the Indian subcontinent, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, they're now purchasing properties in the area and they now signing offer to purchases and they're not fully understanding of what the domestic words are. For example, footstools or domicilium uh, or some of the terms that we take for granted or we may or may not know even as a local, but they, you know, completely unfamiliar with these terms. So yes. I say seek the services of an attorney, attorney generally would charge you a few hundred and five hundred and a thousand and to sit and explain to you what the offer to purchase is all about. What legal consequences they are? Should you change? This is not India. This is not Pakistan. Should you change your mind tomorrow? How? I. uh, What's the legal consequences of that? Yes. All these things are in place. Regarding the banks and financing, remember, Shafat, the banks are governed by the National Credit Act. In terms of the National Credit Act, a bank's got to go through certain procedures to make sure that you qualify before they give you finances otherwise it's called irresponsible it's considered irresponsible lending or reckless lending in which case they could be brought to task and the person who receives the money he could actually get away from paying the loan or there could be some leniency on him in terms of his repayment if the bank is irresponsible in that regard so you find that nowadays what the banks have actually done is that they're very computerized and they're very methodical in terms of the decisions are no longer made in previously you just go to your bank manager you phone your bank manager and say listen please like you know make sure the finance is available and you know facilities and whatever and maybe a day or two later you get a call back and you know the bank manager has now put everything in place but nowadays it's not like that. You go online you, or you submit your application via a mortgage originator or you go into your local bank and you drop off the application or you fill in the application, and it goes through processes. They check your ITC, they check your credit score, they see your affordability, they phone your, they may or may not phone your employer to find out if you're employed, um, how long you've been employed, they check your salary slips to make sure that all the information ties up. And, yes, they are quite strict. But you need to remember also at the same time, Shafat, the vast majority of people in the country still need to be homed houses still need to be provided for them so in many ways there is an obligation on the part of money lenders to try to accommodate and house these people because they is they have a corporate responsibility together with government together with local municipality to house people and uh, sometimes you know uh, the, today you get government subsidies something called flisp for example where they would pay help you pay your deposits or your costs your bond and your transfer costs so government incentives are there government uh, subsidies are there in an effort to allow people to begin start building homes start uh, getting their lives in order so that you know the economy can start to work and people can have less civil frustration and things can work. So yes, you know, if you do say that sometimes they they they, they willy nilly like you say, bonds or finance is being granted. I think in a way we should look at it as if a person has a home, there's a level of respect that he, he acquires from the community. Instead of living underneath a bridge or living in the shack next to the GXK River, where when it floods people are drowning, you know that we're living in 2023 and I think the condition of South Africans needs to improve en masse people need to be homed people need, the government needs to find ways ingenious ways um, to, to, to to house people and the banks, corporates have to play their part and they have to do what is necessary to assist government because this government is taking way too long to do and to, you know, the promises of a million homes, they did it ever materialize that in 20 years' time the ANC's plan is going to be A, B, and C, but at the end of it it was X, Y, and Z. So yes, the level of disappointment is there amongst the people, the level of disillusionment is there. But uh, they, 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 we, should, we should do what is necessary to make sure that people have decent homes, people have decent water and electricity, and children are in a safe environment, and families have a, not just a house, but they have a home.
1: Beautiful indeed. Uh, uh, you know, let's work out a, 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 a scenario here. If uh, I'm going to buy a property, What should I, you know, ask the seller? What must, uh, what are some of the questions I should be posing to the seller? You know, that will uh, uh, will will give him the impression, hey, this guy knows uh, uh, a few things, and you know what? I have to give him the right documents. What are some of the things I should be asking the seller, uh, (laughs) Mohammed
0: You know, you know, in this business, I've seen many scare stories about some of the things that can go wrong. I've just the other day sitting with the clients and. The the demarcation of the land where the land surveyor has demarcated doesn't fall squarely on how the building has been built by the previous owner. So, yes, today we are so ignorant as purchasers. We tend to avoid or tend not to ask the right questions. We tend to avoid spending a few extra rands in getting the services sometimes. You know, it may be unnecessary. It may be unnecessary to get the services of a land surveyor just to make sure that um, the points, the borders, or the, the the boundaries are consistent with the surveyor general's boundaries in, in Pretoria so that the neighbor hasn't encroached, or you haven't encroached. Yes, that, that's one of the things people can do, but nobody ever does that. Um, another thing is people don't ask for plans. And sometimes, you know, a few years down the line, councilman knocks on your door and they say, I'm sorry, this building is illegal, there's no plans. And the council can actually bring an order to demolish anything that has been built without a plan. So that's very serious. Imagine you, you've you invested millions of rents in a house, in a home, in outbuildings, which in, includes outbuildings, and you find that uh, the, the, the seller has built buildings without plans. And maybe a few years ago, uh, people did these types of things because building inspectors were easily corruptible. They used to come and have a cup of tea and a samosa and turn a blind eye and people were doing it. I mean, that was the nature of how things were in this part of the world. But I think, you know, to, uh, for a buyer, they should be, he should inquire about some plans. Is there plans? If the sellers don't have plans, and by law the seller doesn't have to provide plans, that means it's not a legal requirement. Unlike an entomologist report, unlike an electrical compliance certificate issued by an electrician, plans are not a legal requirement. But a purchaser can insist and say, "Listen, I would like to purchase this property subject to plans." Then the seller, if he doesn't have plans, he needs to contact the services of a of, a, of an architect or a draftsman prepare plans, send it to the council, have it approved, come back to the buyer and say, there's your plans. It could cost him very well 20, 30, 40,000 rand today to get basic plans. So, yes, that's an, uh, that's something a buyer should consider. Sometimes I see buyers never, ever ask for a copy of the title deed for some particular reason. It's never a question where I've had the buyers actually say, can we have a copy of the title deed? Let's see what the terms and conditions, what the conditions of this property are, what use of fracks? what servitudes are over the property, do the, rights here, uh, do the neighbors have any rights over me? Is there some other rights that I need to consider? By and large, it's generally safe, the way we, you know, our title is structured, is generally safe, but uh, a buyer should acquaint himself because there may be some sort of uh, use of frack by the neighbor for entrance or exit purposes, uh, right of way, they call it, uh, so yes. Asking about uh, a title deeds may be something that a potential purchaser can can find out about. And uh, when you take transfer of the property, ask for all the necessary paperwork associated with the house. So if the person put in a geezer a year ago, ask him or oh, tell me about your giza. Was there a sales receipt? Where did you buy it from? Is there a guarantee? Because the seller is going to move away. If he moves away and six months later the giza burst you know there's a guarantee. The guarantee, now you can apply for the warranties or the guarantees in terms of what the GIZR's, um warranties consist of and may have it fixed up or repaired at no cost to yourself. And, and with other things as well, you know, gate motors, electronic, alarm systems. Get the documentation. Tomorrow somebody wants to come in and assist you with your alarm and he's got the manual for the alarm. It's easy for him to work through some of these things. Yes, taking occupation, yeah, a person needs to be concerned or rather be mindful of some of these things, issues that come up after the transfer happens.
1: Uh, you know, uh, you find other individuals, uh, they love to buy and sell houses. I mean, a property is, uh, is still a very lucrative uh, business, uh, Muhammad.
0: Yeah, I'm one of those people that's passionate about homes. I love, I love. <laughs> I, I went to Australia to visit my friend Molana Imran Nabi and I told him, you're living here on the Gold Coast, man. I'd like to see what some of the beautiful houses. I said, you're in luck. I've got a Pakistani friend. He's a doctor and his wife is also a doctor. I'm going to take you to his home. And his home was on the, on the beach. And I said, Shafat, you come out of his front door. And you you walk about three meters in front of the front gate and you're already now at the beach. That's how beautiful. It was like an island that he was on, like, you know, possibly an artificial island, which was was created 2.5 million dollars how many years ago? Ten years ago. So it was a huge amount of money. I mean, consider what what the value of the property was. I'm passionate about property. I love property. it's, it's Maybe it's a weakness of mine that I love to see beautiful homes. Can't afford it, <laughs> or uh, like we spoke earlier, you know, does does our lifestyle require it? Sometimes when I think in the middle of the night, if I'm thirsty and I have to walk now down two flights of stairs and then through the kitchen to to fill a glass of water. Rather just die of thirst. It will be easier. No. Um, yes. Properties. You know, it's 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 beautiful. It's great to have properties. Properties are your investment. You buy a property this year, maybe three years or five years over uh, hands. You can flip it, make a profit. It's one of those assets that's relatively safe in terms of property prices. Hardly ever come down. You know, we don't know what the future holds, except that Allah knows. Uh, but uh, we we say that. As a general rule, properties are great investments. You can buy a property now on the beachfront, maybe two million there in a and four years down the line, you'll get your money back. You may even make a decent profit on it. And yes, you have the use and the enjoyment of the property at the same time. So better than a car. If you're going to spend two million bucks on the car now, four years later, see if you can get two million or even 1.5 million or even one million for the car. So in terms of an investment for, 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 for the way forward, your money is being used and is growing in a way that you're able to benefit from it. So, alhamdulillah, I would suggest couples that are coming newly married and are renting should consider them finding a way to purchase property uh, and, and set themselves out. Uh, one of the earlier things that I did in my life was that I was, I I purchased the property. I was renting for a while, but I purchased the property and then get out of debt as soon as you can also. And once you're out of debt, you find, you know, once you've paid back all the loans, family members, or soft loans or wherever people was able to assist you, once you get past that situation, you'll find that there's now peace, there's contentment that you have a roof. You can now actually grow your portfolio as the family grows, you can then swap houses. You can sell this house. You know this equity associated with the house. You go into a better area or you go into a better, a, a, a bigger house or you go into a more comfortable environment. You're able to do that and you grow. And it may happen that you, over the course of your life, you do move homes or relocate a few times. Nothing wrong with it. But I do find the culture amongst Indian people is that they don't really like to move unlike, unlike the whites. The whites, you find that uh, they flip. They, every few years, like five to 10 years, they like to shift and move around, experience different towns, experience different environments. Like they say, they're relocating to the coast. They're going to retire in such and such a town. They're going to, the work opportunity is different. So they always, you know, the, the, the property market is very buoyant, and estate agents are making money, and conveyances are making money. In our case, you know, mostly you find that the children live with their parents and the parents bequeath the properties to the children, the children grow up, they then grow old in these homes, their children grow up and like that, the properties can be handed down through a couple of generations. Very unique system, you know, we we, we Indians have this um, culture about us to do these types of things and alhamdulillah just so that give you an insight as maybe some of the things that i've perceived over the years in terms of where uh, and how we deal with our personal homes
1: yeah that was a very uh, brilliant insight into that and uh, you know really bring it alive uh, for the type of uh, life we are living and yeah you pass it on to generation upon generation you know the term that you're using quite often is flipping and you know uh, flipping houses in south africa is a you know as you said a lucrative uh, business so those that do not understand flipping and flipping uh, you know how to be profitable uh, i want you to elaborate elaborate a little bit more on uh, flipping what's it all about uh, mohammed okay so (laughs) giving
0: you a bit of personal insight so Uh as a junior attorney i um one of the first things that I did was I got involved in flipping homes. So I would then buy dilapidated homes, I would buy homes that but generally, you know, you set some rules for those types of things that it must be easy to sell once you fix it up. And uh, those years, you know, Council was council accounts, for example, water, electricity and rates and taxes and all that wasn't expensive. I don't know you, you recall in the early years. These were manageable expenses in any home. So even if you bought a house and you kept it for a year and in a year you were fixing it up and you were really now polishing it up and you were making it look nice so that a year down the line you'd sell it, your holding expenses wasn't too much. You know, uh, you really didn't have to worry too much about rates and taxes and water and electricity. And this has become, today has become a major expense in holding a property today. That uh, council demands so much money from you, you wonder to yourself whether there's any value in flipping properties um, because of the amount that you end up paying to the council. And of course now, when when I started flipping properties was the days before capital gain tax. So, you know, you could buy a property and you could sell it and you could make a decent profit. And... um, you could you could use that as a capital you could use that as a tax free income uh, or rather not as a capital gain income because now you you pay capital gains tax on properties if you flop it so yes uh, getting rid of tenants in the early years was much easier than it is now to get rid of a tenant now to get rid of a tenant you have to deal with a pie and you have to deal with different acts and legislations and councils and municipalities and all that so things have become difficult but there are still some people that continue that uh, that persist in doing the, uh, this type of uh, it's it's uh, it's an income earning opportunity for people that may want to start up in this type of business. So it's where you go in cheap, where you go in reasonable, and you uh, you, you spend. You have a budget now in terms of what are you able to do. You have a maintenance team or a building team, a contracting team. You go into a property. See, remember, people, especially first-time homebuyers, avoid wanting to do work. They're scared to do work. Sometimes just a a, a new tile job or a new paint job makes a difference on the property. We know that. We know that. We've seen it, you know. Sometimes the house can't sell because the color of the house is ugly. But when you go and you just fresh coat of paint and you give it new flavor and you give it a new color, It's exciting. Potential buyers automatically, when you're standing and look at the house from the outside, they look at the expressive colors and the beautiful colors. It really makes a difference, you know, just a fresh coat of paint. So it's like that. But potential buyers, for many reasons, one of the reasons potential buyers don't want to spend on the house is because they don't have the money. It was. Expensive enough that they had to put a deposit and maybe raise more money for transfer costs and raise more money for odds and ends and relocation costs and costs that were became unavoidable. So now to avoidable expenses like a fresh coat of paint, changing the paving or just like, you know, changing a garage door is money that they don't want to budget for immediately. So they scare away and they shy away from these types of. So seller potentially should be doing this and maybe including it in his price. So to say, you know what? I've repainted the house. It looks a bit nicer. It's easier for me to sell and I'm still going to see if I can't charge extra 10,000 rent for the fresh coat of paint in my purchase price. So I'm not going to say it for 500,000. I'm going to see if I can't get five hundred ten 10,000. That is easier for a potential buyer because he doesn't see now that, that is being a cost over and above his purchase price. Uh, and Number two is that generally younger couples are, are a bit scared in terms of, you know, Constructing and doing work and, you know, our people, our generation is a different generation. We break a wall down, break a house down and we rebuild. The younger generation is a bit more cautious about these types of things. In fact, they also, you find that they, they're tending to live in flats now. They're telling it uh, they want to live in estates. They want to live in closed environments. They want to live in uh, exclusive estates. So anyway, where there isn't much maintenance, everything has already been built for you. There's your price stand and your swimming pool and your double car park and your double story. Uh, unit that you have there, and when you look over your balcony, you see the golf course. This is now the, 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 the new youth, the, the new generation that's, that's buying nowadays. So yes, uh, there is a shift away now from the, The the conventional homes to this type of living and and it comes with these advantages. We don't really have to detail it here Yes, that's that's some of the other things in terms of flipping so flipping would mean generally that you do your budget You do your homework you say even if I'm going to buy this property and spend so much money I'm still going to be making a profit selling at this particular price and it's a business opportunity on Sorry, you're your own boss and at the same time, you know You're able to then manage your budget and expenses and if you come out with a decent profit You know, it makes it worth all the trouble at the end of the day.
1: I tell you, Muhammad, absolutely, mashallah, this evening you are flying and flowing. And Alhamdulillah brought up so much of uh, personal details because, you know, it's like chewing bubble gum for you. I mean, maybe I can say it like sipping a cup of chai. That's how easy it was for you this evening. Perhaps your parting words before we let you go. Gee, so yes,
0: uh, once again, you know, it's these, these, these things, these topics that you throw at me are impromptu. There's no way I could have researched any of this discussion, but Alhamdulillah, hope from what we were able to express and what we're able to share with your listeners gives an insight especially for a younger couple young generation that wants to consider investing in property buying in property we've come we've done we've done it all in my personal life I've bought and sold homes and I bought and sold buildings and I bought and sold farms and we did everything because our special property I love what I did and as a conveyancer you know we have access to information we have access to we save a lot of money in terms of transfer costs and we save a lot of money where we know because we understand the processes I think you know it's 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 something that everybody in some way in the course of their life they will come to this bridge of buying and selling a property. Yes, understand this uh, that it's, it's it's it may be complex, it may be daunting, it may be overwhelming. But services of an attorney and a conveyancer are there for us to use and enjoy. We pay a few rents, but we get good advice. The advice that we give or that we get is more more it's 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 more valuable than the few hundred rands that we're going to spend because in the long term it could be some benefit to the potential purchaser so once again Shabbat, uh, Jazakallah for you and assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh to you and your
1: listeners jazakallah khair Hafez uh, muhammad kubaria, our attorney this evening uh, allah bless you allah keep you and always uh, you know we learn a lot from you you have a mashallah beautiful Evening ahead, wa'alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Time for us to go for the Isha'an, and inshallah we will continue after that.